How many of you all know Helen was a school teacher? Wouldn't you love to turn her loose on a batch of 7th and 8th graders today? Oh my goodness. Revolutionize the educational system as we know it today. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, appreciate your part in all this as well. Uh, Frank said something at the very tail end of his sharing with us this morning that triggered a thought in me that I would follow up on something that he said, because tomorrow or tonight later, I think he's going to be talking more about the, the transformational aspects of this very liberating truth, so that it's not just a concept or an abstract. And uh, I'll be doing the same thing tomorrow, both in, in you know our own personal way, but don't ever think for a minute that any of us has a private individual contract with God. We're in this together, and the transformational aspect involves the entire body of Christ. And that doesn't mean everybody agrees with what we agree or hears with the same ears that we hear, but we are in this thing together. And transformation occurs within and because of the body of Christ. So this is not just about me and my own little private walk with God. Let's not ever let the enemy distract us and take us there. So I thought this would be a good idea so that we didn't have to maybe cover some ground. Some of this Frank covered this morning, and that's what really touched my heart. Uh, not that there's anything to improve upon or go any deeper, but just give a chance for the Spirit to affirm some things once again. I want to. Last night we talked about this in Christ idea that's all over the New Testament. And we kind of laid out the idea that in Christ, we are in the arena. In Christ has a locational aspect to it, as well as the existential aspect of my whole beingness being changed. But when we're in Christ, we're in the arena of a living oneness with God. And that is just such a joyful revelation. Uh, when our eyes are open to that reality, it, it, I don't think all of eternity will allow us to get over that, as we were talking about earlier this morning. It's just a stunning fact. But that also means since the living God is Father, Son, and Spirit relating to one another in fearless love, that you and I, when we're in Christ, are in the arena of personal freedom. Uh, God meant this before the foundation of the world, and He made it possible in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And although I'm limiting myself to three ideas in the next few minutes here, these are not the only freedom thieves that there are. But I want to highlight three that I run into all the time within the body of Christ. And one of these uh, is a subject unto itself for an entire weekend. So we're just going to hit the headlines tonight. But one of the primary freedom thieves that I hear about and run into in the body of Christ is a sin consciousness. Because the minute we think of ourselves as sinners, as sinful, is to keep ourselves at some kind of distance from the glorious freedom that's ours in Christ. Because we read in Hebrews that Christ is separated from sinners. 
You ever read that in Hebrews chapter 9? So why would I dare think of myself as a sinner? I have to automatically think separation. So it robs us of one aspect, at least, of this glorious freedom. There's also a law consciousness. And if we think of ourselves as under the law, we're thinking of ourselves as condemned. And again, outside the glorious freedom that is the birthright of every son and daughter of God. And certainly if we think of fear, this fear consciousness, we're going to think of ourselves as, as separated or outside of this fellowship or, or in constant danger or risk of being rejected by God and miss out on this glorious freedom. And the sad part is that the thing that I seem to run into, and the reason I've picked these three in particular, is they all seem to be rolled into one brand of man-made or traditional theology. Follow it for just a minute. I believe I'm a sinner, and I need the law to help me be more righteous. I need the law to help me to get closer to God, but I'm afraid I'll never achieve that. And you get all three of them in any given Sunday morning in some places of worship. The devil makes a pretty good living off those kinds of people because we're listening to a liar. We're listening to an accuser. We're being deceived when we buy into any of those things. And I think we can find an antidote, if you will, to this uh, kind of idea, a truth that can at least remind some of us in the room tonight or open the door, the eyes of our heart, as uh, Frank was talking about, Paul praying for us in Ephesians, to these God-given freedoms. And, and we're just going to skim, lightly skim, over Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I know there's tons and tons of deep truth in here, but I want to approach it just a little bit differently tonight because I'm... I'm I'm of the persuasion of the opinion that Romans 6 and 7, 6, 7 and 8 may be more testimony than theological treatise. Not that you can't find theology and good theology here. I'm hearing a testimony from someone who lived in that kind of theology. I'm sinful and the law should help me become more righteous, but there's this constant fear hanging over my heads. I'll never quite get there. And all of a sudden, something is different about this man who wrote Romans 6, 7, and 8. That's going to make a lot of what we hear here uh, counter to a lot of our tradition. But let's jump into it anyway. And let's start with Romans chapter 6. Our freedom from sin. And since freedom or deliverance or salvation in the Bible is always from something for something, this is our freedom from sin for the something called righteousness. And Frank did as good a job talking to us about this as I've ever heard this morning. Let's just pick up in the few of the verses at the beginning in Romans chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7. For if we have become united with Him, with whom? With Christ. In the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Here's that arena of living oneness we've entered into. And when this happens, what are we coming to faith, believe, and then to know? Knowing this, that our old self, this sinful self, this condemned self, this hopeless self, this hell-bound self, this old self was what? Crucified with Him. 
in order that our body of sin, this vehicle, this carrier of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died, here's our word, is freed from sin. And Paul is giving a testimony right here in those few verses. It's as if Paul is saying, I don't know anybody freed from sin who's focusing on sin. And somehow or another, we think if we can get people to focus on their sins and identify their sins and be wary of their sins and name their sins, somehow we can magically be free of sin. And Paul says in the sixth chapter of Romans, I found that to be absolutely untrue because that's all the law did was make me conscious of sin. He said there's only one way to be freed from sin, by death. Nine times in these first 13 verses, Paul uses the word death or died. We've entered into the death of Christ. We have died and therefore free from sin. We who have died. He's not talking about some kind of ongoing reaction. He's talking about a specific finished reality. We have died in Christ. And I think it's extremely interesting as Paul is writing this section of the letter to the Roman church and bearing witness to the difference Jesus has made in his life, that he deals with sin before sins. And I'm willing to wager a good Baptist bet that 95% of us in this room were told about sins before sin. That's not the end of the world. I'm glad somebody loved me enough to tell me that I had sinned and done a lot of sinning. And that there was a solution for that. The kindest thing in the world is to call sins, sins, because there's a solution for sins. And His name is Jesus Christ. I'll be thankful forever. Someone loved me enough to tell me that. But I think it's really interesting that most of us started by thinking about sins, and Paul is started by talking about sin. He said, knowing this, this is what you need to know to be free in Christ, that you have died to sin. That life in Christ creates a brand new relationship to sin. You're dead to it. It's not just a legal matter, it's a relational matter. What his relationship is to a thing, we covered this last night, is now my relationship to a thing. That's why he says in verse 6, we're no longer bodies of sin. That's being done away with. We're no longer containers of sin. That's not who we are any longer. We're not carriers of a sin nature any longer. That person, that being was crucified with Christ. And even though we were urged, and rightfully so, we were urged to see Jesus Christ dying on that cross for our sins, Paul starts by urging his hearers to see Jesus Christ on that cross and themselves in Him dying to sin. Give you goosebumps to God as a sacrifice of praise. I don't know. Maybe I couldn't have heard that. God in His infinite wisdom knew what I needed to hear. But Paul's just blasting right on through into the freedom that is ours once we know we are dead in Christ. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
This old man, this old body of sin was crucified. That I, that me no longer lives. And the only way for a human being to be alive to God is to have sin killed out of him. And as Frank said, then buried. That's why some of us do baptism by immersion. We bury an old life in a watery grave. I love to say to some of our students who are baptized in our church, I dip you for dead. I've told most of you what I'll do with them. I said, I want your eyes, I want you looking at me when you're under that water. And when you're under, I want to see your lips move. I'm dead. Then I bring you back up. Not until. I want that to be a memorable moment in your life. We were liberated from our sins and praise God, all of them. We had a great little Bible study around the table with Brett and Ron here from Romans 6, 7, and 8. That man, all of our sins, past and present and future, all of our transgressions, there was an objective and judicial freedom from sin and all of its penalties. And the Scripture teaches this, you can only be totally guilty or totally forgiven. There is no holy middle ground. There's nothing in between. All of them wiped away, erased, dealt with, paid for. But that's not where Paul starts. He's saying, you need to know you're liberated from sin. That doesn't name you or define you any longer. You're liberated from what you were. Therein lies our subjective personal freedom and all the power that comes with what it means to be free in Christ. Sin no longer names me. It no longer identifies me. It no longer lives as a nature in me any longer. The evil one has no ground that he can claim any longer. Cast out for keeps. Why? What did we read at the end of verse? Where were we? I got so excited I forgot where. This is, Bob, why people have a hard time following me on these things. Let's talk about uh, the newness of life, the end of verse 4. So that we too might walk in the mixture of life, the mixture of Adam and Christ, the mixture of sin and righteousness. No, something altogether brand new. Somebody that wasn't there before. Newness, something that was recently made. And the very directive right there presumes its possession. You need to know you can walk in the newness of life. That directive presumes the... I don't know what I'm doing to it. I'm not spitting in it. but <laughs> Presumes the possession of this newness. We're not trying to achieve it or grab onto it or get to the place where it becomes ours. What's so different about us now? Look in verse 8 of chapter 6. We live with Him. We exist in life that is eternal, in righteous life, in Jesus' life, in holy life, in sanctified life, in glorified life, as we said last night. We're not trying to. We're not hoping to. We're not praying to. We're not fasting to. We're not studying to. We're not waiting until we die and get to. We are. John says it so powerfully in 1 John 3.1. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. And if that isn't enough, he goes on to say, and we are. Present tense. Such we are. That is who we are. Listen, in the New Testament, but we're going to stick with Romans 6 tonight, but you can find it in the New Testament anywhere you look. Paul never tells people to consider your sinfulness in order to walk freely in the newness of your life. That's not how freedom is experienced. He's saying, consider your newness. Consider your righteousness, your saintliness, your completedness. Consider yourself dead to sin if you want. In verse 11, that's all right too. Reckon, consider it no longer of the, has the power to name you, but don't think you can get by without for considering this for a minute. You are alive to God. This is where the freedom is. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Why does he start here? Because your new life in Christ does not want to sin any more than Lazarus wanted to go back to the tomb and put on the grave clothes. And John will take it so far in 1 John 3, right, Brett? He will say, you're born again, this can't even sin. You might... Live as though that's not your nature and do something really stupid and make a poor choice and commit a sin. But your new nature, your born againness cannot sin. You want to be someone who experiences that freedom? Dead to sin, alive to God. Consider your freedom. Look in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. It's Paul's way of saying you're free not to sin. It's not you any longer. Look in verse 12. Circle that word, it's. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you do not obey its lust. They're not your lusts. They're not yours. You have the nature of the Son of God in you now. If you lust for anything, you lust for knowing Him and being an expression of His life. Consider your freedom, He says. If there's sin, and he does mention in Romans 6 and 7, there's this sin thing, there's this rogue element, there's this outer entity, there's this parasite that tries to attach itself to the Christian life, but it's not you. That you died. He makes a provision for living in that kind of freedom, some inner breaks, as it were, when he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You're free from its mastery. He says in verse 11, consider yourself dead to it. He's not saying, now try hard not to sin tomorrow. Back to 1 John chapter 2. I am writing you these things, John said, so that you may not sin. We make it our objective not to sin very much. That's a good Christian. You make it your objective not to sin very much, but since you're only a sinner, you got to sin every day, right? But don't do very much. No. I'm telling you this, John says, so that you don't sin. Meaning what? The implication is what? You don't have to. You're free from its mastery. 
That's the exact same thing Paul is saying here in Romans 6. Just like you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess with our mouth, I am dead to that. That is not my Father's voice. We believe in our heart and the life who raised us from the dead steps into that moment and has His way. That's considering yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And I know what every one of us thinks, even when the lights come on, we're saying, okay, God, I believe you, but I don't get it. If this is true, if I'm dead to sin, then why am I still tempted? And the enemy throws his deadly evil logic as a fiery dart into our brain, tricking us into thinking that I must have a sin nature, because if I were really dead to sin, if I didn't have a sin nature, then I wouldn't be tempted any longer. Did Adam have a sin nature back in Genesis before he and Eve partook from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But he was tempted, wasn't he? He didn't have a sin nature. Did Jesus, the Son of God, fathered by the Spirit of God into the woman Mary, did he have a sin nature? Was he tempted? How much was he tempted? In all ways, just like you and me, but he didn't have a sin nature. You always let the truth answer the lie. Always. You don't have to have a sin nature to be tempted. It's simply an indication that even though we are dead to sin, sin is not dead to us as an operating power in this world, even for the purposes of God. But that's another story. There's that pressure. There's that draw. There's that temptation. But God means it for something that He's doing in all of us and in summing everything up in Jesus Christ. Over in the seventh chapter of Romans, Paul says, well, the sin may be in me, but it's not me. And you know all the illustrations. There may be a virus in me, but I'm not a virus. I may have a splinter in my finger. I'm not a block of wood. There may be sin in me, habit patterns, ruts, echoes of my past. I don't think anybody said it any better than that, as Corey Tinboom called it. But it's not me any longer. The splinter may be not good, but I'm fine. I'm fine. What are we learning to do in those moments when we see ourselves alive to God in the arena of living oneness with Christ and dead to sin? We're learning to see properly. We're learning to see the temptations that are out there, not against just me, but against the life of the Son of God in me. Just me was crucified. The temptation is not drawing me as a sinner toward anything. Me, the sinner, has died in Christ. Wow. i got to stop here for a minute. Listen, to walk in the freedom of Christ is to walk in these simple words, dead to sin, alive to God. It's not that complex. 
I'm not saying it's not a battle. I'm not saying we're even beyond being deceived and tricked. I am saying it's that simple and that direct. That's why Paul is giving testimony. I tried this. I tried that. I tried hard. I tried the law. I tried everything. This is what set me free, dead to sin, alive to God. Look at the second thing that our freedom speaks of. We're free from the law for grace. That would be Romans chapter 7, down through about at least the the fourth verse of the eighth chapter as we know it. I think Romans chapter 7 is nothing but a commentary on Romans 6.14. You're not under law, but under grace. And chapter 7 is just the exposition of that, the commentary on that. I don't know, other than Frank, if anybody in this room ever met our mutual friend Bob Warren. Big old tall guy, used to play basketball for the San Antonio Spurs. And we did some conferences with Bob, and I've known Bob for 25 or 30 years. And Bob used to say this all the time. What does living under the law give you? What would living under the law give you? What would it give you? It'd give you a big smile, but really sad eyes. And after a while, you lose the big smile. I know. I've pulled into church parking lots and you can hear them frowning before you get out of your car. (laughs) You lose the smile after a while. Listen, there's only one reason for a child of God to go back under the law. Only one reason. That is belief in the inadequacy of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we would go back under the law. I don't believe what Jesus did was enough. It wasn't sufficient. Now I need the law to help me get to where God wants me to give. Even though in Romans chapter 8 verse 3 we read, this is what the law couldn't do. In a nutshell, what? Give us life. The law can never make a saint out of a sinner. And I think that's what Paul's working through in the seventh chapter of Romans. It's not the conflict of two natures. It's the conflict of a man being killed by the law. And everybody wants to argue. And we had this conversation, no argument, conversation around the table. Was he a believer or an unbeliever? It doesn't matter. The law has the same ministry. I happen to think Paul's writing this as a believer. And he's certainly not writing it as a testimony to the normal Christian life. If anything, it's the prelude to the normal Christian life. you got to go through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And Paul was a really good Jew, and the Exodus story was paramount in their theology. And Romans 6 is the Exodus experience, the release from Egypt. And Romans 7 is the wilderness experience. And Romans 8 is the promised land. And we have a wilderness experience here in Romans 7 of a man trying to please God by keeping the law. This in Paul's way of saying by testimony, a holy and healthy self-despair opens us up to the actual possibilities of grace. There's a holy kind of self-despair. I grew up in the Baptist tradition, still pastor a Baptist church, and we were always really big on once saved, always saved. And I've realized that's not true. Every believer ought to believe in twice saved, always saved. You get saved from sin, then you got to get saved from religion and the law. 
then you're saved. Then you're free. I don't think the children of Israel had to spend 40 years in the wilderness, three or four weeks. I've made that journey. I've been through the Sinai Desert and I've crossed some of the routes and climbed Mount Sinai in the dark to kind of get up there for a sunrise. It don't take 40 years. But you had to go through the wilderness to get to the promised land. It might be a brief stay for some of us who have a very low threshold of pain. But some of you hardheads, <laughs> I can do this. The right book is out there. The right church is out there. I just haven't got to the right law section yet. Something. Even though, as Frank said, the law is not for the righteous from 1 Timothy 1.9. Look how Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 7. What is the ministry of the law in verse 7? It's to reveal sin. What should we say? Is the law sin? No, there's nothing wrong with the law. Don't ever say that. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. It reveals sin. If you go on down to verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. It arouses sin. If you go over in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six that Frank had us read early this morning, it empowers sin. So what is the ministry of the law? It reveals sin. It arouses sin. It empowers sin. You want to have uh, a lot of sin in your church? Preach lots of law. That's what it does. That's its ministry. And if you go to verses 10 and 11, it didn't result in life. Paul says in verse 10, it resulted in death for me. Taking an opportunity in verse 11 through the commandment, it deceived me. Satan deceived me. Sin deceived me. Satan deceived me and through it, he killed me. It was deadly. The law's not bad, it's just doing its job. It identifies sin. It even confines sin. So all the sins of the world can be defined and confined and put in one place on a Messiah on a cross somewhere so they can be killed, buried, and finished with forever. And you and I didn't lift a finger to make that happen. There's no freedom in going under the law and trying to live out the law. It's nothing but bondage. It's exacted its price. There's no more need for the law. Yes, it does yield a wretchedness. And to set ourselves up under its authority is to set ourselves up for fatigue, frustration, and failure. And if you ask most people, how's it going with you and God? I'm tired, I'm frustrated, and I just can't do it. Fatigue, frustration, and failure. It's a dead giveaway. We're not experiencing our freedom there. Paul, at the end of Romans 7, comes to a, a blessed kind of wretchedness. Yes. Blessed is the man who comes to the end of himself. We were talking around the table about it. I don't think that was... If he was a believer, Brett and I happen to think he, he was a believer here at this point, that wasn't God's opinion of Paul. That was Paul's opinion of Paul. That was his sole experience. He's going to go just a couple of verses later and tell us there's no condemnation. So God's opinion of Paul wasn't that he was wretched, 
But Paul's opinion of Paul was that he was wretched because he had placed himself back under the law. It's doing what it's designed to do. Kill, not give life, not empower, not liberate. And it's revealing something. This is the why I think this is so testimonial instead of just theological. Paul is revealing something to us here. He is revealing that the law can never take a sinner and make that person into a saint. It not only can't move you one iota closer to law, it seems to put more and more distance between us and God. For the unbeliever, it's part of the gospel. It silences, it crushes. You know when a person's ready to get saved? When they shut their mouths. There's no more blaming, there's no more excusing, there's no more rationalizing. And the law has done its work. Shut us all up in sin under the law. But for a believer, it's designed to yield a sin consciousness. It's supposed to produce a self-consciousness. To teach us something, what? That neither sin consciousness nor self-consciousness are routes to Christ-likeness. That's not how we get from there to here or from here to there. It doesn't work that way. They're not routes that Jesus traveled, right? And he said, I am the way. Jesus didn't travel with a sin consciousness. He didn't travel with a self-consciousness. And he said, I'm the way. So sin sin consciousness or self-consciousness can never be a route to godliness. Not ever in any way, shape, or form. Look at the ministry of grace. Where another does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Look in chapter 7, verse 6. We've been released from the law. There's the ministry of grace. How? By the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were by grace placed into Christ in His finished work. He met the requirement of the law without sin so that He might give Himself to you and me. So that the requirement, chapter 8, verse 4, of the law might be fulfilled not by us, but in us. In us given to us as a gift. If anybody ever tries to sell you any bit of redemption apart from a free gift, you do this. It's what we tried to say last night. Justification is a gift, and almost every evangelical buys into that, then they all hop off the peace train. And now sanctification is a work and glorification awaits our death. No, every single bit of it is a gift of the Lord Jesus Christ or it's not redemption. It's all by grace. It's all a free gift. We're finished with the law as any way to godliness. It was a temporary interim arrangement, we read in Galatians 3.19, until the Messiah comes. And if you read chapter 8, verse 13 of Hebrews, it has been made obsolete. The law covenant has been made obsolete. So what's the ministry of grace? It reveals sin, but without condemnation. It arouses righteousness and even empowers righteousness. And it releases us from the law. We all know that under the law, sin is wrong, but under grace, sin is still wrong. But more so, it's stupid. 
You're freed from sin. It it cannot make you do a single thing you and I don't choose to do any longer. That came with the free gift of a new you. I believe this more every day, and I don't know a better way to say it other than in Adam, in Adam, before Christ, before grace, outside the new covenant, and our entering into Christ, a self-referenced evil inclination preceded every choice that we ever made. That was our nature. I mean, you may have waded through it and found it expedient to do a good thing. But your origins and your source weren't in the goodness of God. An evil, self-referenced inclination preceded every choice. But you can count on this just as much. Once you and I are in Christ, a God-referenced righteous inclination precedes every choice that we make. It's our nature now. I may not pay attention to it. I may disregard it. I may be caught up in something and I'm into something over here that didn't come from God before I realize what I've done, but that doesn't change the truth. This is what grace does for us. It changes our want to. To walk in the freedom of Christ is to walk in the power of these liberating words. We're not under law, but under grace. Let's look at this final aspect. In Christ, there's a freedom from fear for love. Brett made this comment, and I had realized it in reading it. I don't know the exact numbers. But if you read chapter 7 of Romans, there's really no mention of the Holy Spirit of God. This is all I, 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 me, 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 what I can or cannot do. As though I'm apart from God. In Romans 8, which is that glorious victory, freedom, joy chapter, the Spirit's mentioned over 20 times. There's your contrast. There's the testimony that Paul is giving. This is a part of not I, but Christ. In Christ... Paul's making it clear in the 8th chapter of Romans, fear no longer needs to be the motive force of our lives. We don't have to be motived by fear. That's the devil's stock and trade. He is the spirit of fear. He's the fearful one. He knows his days are numbered. And he is looking for a fearful place to land. And so when Paul's talking about our freedom in the promised land of Christ, he's talking to us about the truth of God, the liberating one who is the truth, ridding us of our fears because fearful people are not free people. You've all been in places in life where some kind of chronic fear... It's not, I'm not talking about the acute fearful reaction when a car about runs you off the road. But you've lived in chronic fear maybe for a week or a month or maybe for years. And you know how demoralizing chronic fear is. But that's not the intent of the enemy. He intends fear to be demoralizing. To separate you and me from all of our God-like, Christ-like options. Blind us to our realities that are a part of our birthright in Christ. 
And so Paul starts out that eighth chapter of Romans with a truth that was maybe one of the first real liberating truths some of us in this room heard. I don't know where your kind of jumping off point was, but for many of us it was right there in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, that in Christ there's no fear of rejection or condemnation. Do you remember when that jumped out at you? And I don't know, for some of us, it was just that word, no. It screamed at us, no condemnation. And even if you were in church, you wanted to go, yes. For some of the rest of us, you know what the word was? Now. I didn't believe I was going to get condemned before some big throne of God. I sure believed I was being condemned in the meantime. Now! You put those two words together in the way Paul constructs the sentence, it's like, in no way now, in no way now, can condemnation touch anybody who is in Christ. Because to condemn you, he'd have to condemn Christ in you, and that's not ever going to happen. And the fear of condemnation is taken away from us. What a gloriously liberating truth. Paul said the same thing to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 4, when God looks down into us to the deepest part of who we are as new creatures in Christ, goes to a place where the devil can't go. He goes to the place where you can't go. He goes to the place where your parents and your spouse can't go. And he looks into the very bottoms of who you are and he finds nothing to condemn. Blameless, I think Paul put it in that verse. He looks down into, oh, oh, I like what I see down there. I see holy. I see righteous. I see nothing down there. You wonder why Paul gets excited about the pleasure of God? No fear. You want to live freely? You dare to freely accept God's acceptance of you. How in the world can we go on hating what God loves? How can we reject what God has already accepted unless we've been tricked into erecting standards here that are somehow different or higher than God's? No fear of condemnation. The Jews were so fearful in this area of their lives. This is why I think Paul was just ecstatic about this. That they would not dare speak God's name out of fear that they would poof, be gone. That's why Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans, we don't even think twice about calling him Abba. You want to know if you're under law or under grace? Where do you go when you do commit a sin? Do you go hide behind a bush or do you run to Abba? No fear of condemnation. No fear of get out of here and clean that mess up and then you get back in here and we'll deal with that. No thought of that occurring. Abba. Oh, how freeing is that? How liberating is that? 
You will never be free behind a bush. (laughs) You know, your rationalization, your excuse for sameness, your blaming other people, those are all bushes we hide behind. We're not ever free behind a bush. Listen, there's no fear of defeat, no fear of the opposition. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Why? We're not in the flesh any longer. My flesh is no match for the devil. He's not omniscient, omnipotent, but his IQ and power are a lot further down the road than mine. I don't mind admitting that. I'm no match for him, but he is no match for Christ in me. And I'm not in the flesh. What does Paul say? We are in the Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells you and me. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, we don't belong to Him, but we do have the Spirit of Christ. Verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. How's that going to happen? Through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amazing thought. It's Paul's way of saying you've got the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has you. Whatever cannot defeat the Spirit of God can't defeat you. The power behind this entire operation, Paul says, is not a principle. It's not a law. It's not a proposition. It's a person. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16, he says, We live according to the power of an indestructible life. Undefeatable, indestructible. No fear of being conquered any longer. We might be defamed by the enemy, but never defeated. We might be accused by the devil and lots of other people, but never condemned. Listen, you may be crucified, but you'll never be conquered. You cannot keep the life of the Son of God down. Paul says we get knocked down, but what? We get right back up. It might take a few days, but we'll get back up. Not because we're strong, we've got willpower, but because of the Spirit living within us. Listen, there will be all kinds of battles in this world because of who you are in Christ. But we don't have any fear of inadequacy. Frank read that for us in 2 Corinthians 3. Our adequacy is not of ourselves. We're not in the flesh any longer. We're in the Spirit. Our adequacy is from God. We know who the victor is. We simply learn to stand in Him. And because you and I are in Christ and Christ is in us, Paul makes it clear in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, there will be combat, hand-to-hand combat, agonizing all-night battles with forces of darkness. They will bring you to tears. You might sweat drops of blood. You might be so oppressed you cannot close your eyes and go to sleep, but you will never be defeated. If you stand. Listen, knowing this truth, I would not suggest you get in a dialogue with the darkness. 
I don't recommend you go get on a crusade Monday and try to stomp out all the evil in the world. I don't think we ought to, come on, bring your best shot, devil. Duke it out with the devil. I'd stand if I were you. I'd stand in the power of an indestructible life. I'd stand in my salvation. I'd stand in my righteousness. I'd stand in my truth. I'd stand in my peace. I'd stand in my faithfulness. And I would stand with the sword of the Lord, the word of God. I'd stand. And Paul says the fear of defeat. There is opposition. And that will cause your soul to swing some days and your flesh to flap like crazy. But the evil one cannot touch your born againness. First John chapter 5, verse 18. He cannot touch the one who is born from above. That's off limits. We stand in the Spirit. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 31, if God the Father, Son, and Spirit is for us, then who can get the final word against us? We don't live in that fear of being defeated. He came to put away sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to be the death of death. He either did that perfectly or he failed. So in chapter 8, verse 37, Paul says these words. In all these things, you think about some of the worst things life can do to you, and Paul mentions them in the previous verses. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him. Through Him who loved us. This hyper, super victory that he's talking about. So certain that nothing created can ever separate us from this conqueror of everything that is against us. I, I do believe we are sheep. But we are sheep who can take down wolves. Yes. <laughs> I've got this weirdest picture in my mind. Can, can you imagine... A wolf coming up to a sheep, <laughs> knowing, hey man, this is a snack. And that sheep just tears him to pieces? <laughs> We're sheep who take down wolves. Not in our own strength. Not because we fasted this week. Not we're on some, because we're some kind of frequent prayer program and we got some really good blessings from God. Through Him. Through Him who loved us. There's the love that casts out all that fear. To walk in our freedom is to walk in these words. We overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. There's no fear of meaningless. I would, meaninglessness. I would love to take the time to develop that. I'm not going to. There's no fear of separation. And the root of all separation anxiety in this country in any form is the fear of being separated from our Creator. Every other separation anxiety is an exponent of this particular fear. This is who we were made for. This is where we were made to be at home. Paul says in verse 38, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that none of these things can separate me from my Creator, from my God who loved me. So being in Christ is the truth that sets us free from all the things we're afraid of. You get your humanity back. You get to feel fear again. 
It's not a sign you're not in Christ. It's not a sign you're not trusting God. It is the sound that God's voice is making saying, come and get lost in my love for you and let my perfect love wash that fear away from you and let me use that thing to press you deeper into who I am in you. Learn about my sufficiency. Trust in my adequacy. Let me love you out of those fears. Listen, I think if you'll stop and think about it for most of us, Fear was one of the primary agents that God used in getting us into the awareness. The fear opens the door to not eyes so we can press on into the room of but Christ. Psalmist knew this, even in the Old Covenant understanding, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. The fear was the escort into the presence of God. It was the call to worship, if you will. And what the evil one meant for evil, God meant the very same thing for good. Why is all this so important? Because when we step into our freedom, when we're motivated by love, the exercise of our freedom becomes profitable for others. Oh, certainly it's profitable to us. But it doesn't stop with us. It's not primarily just about me. It's the exercise of this freedom that takes almost any event and makes it profitable for the sake of other people. This is where so much of the meaningfulness and purposefulness comes from. So we're not ever going to experience our freedom in a consciousness of ourselves or of sin, only of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. We're not going to experience our freedom that's already ours in a consciousness of the law, but only in a consciousness of Christ and His grace. We're not going to live in this glorious freedom by being conscious of our fears, but we're not going to live in it by repressing and denying our fears. We're going to own them in the presence of perfect love. And we're going to be conscious of Christ and His love for me that will set me free from the things I've been afraid of. And the fearless lover himself begins to find more and more of His expression through us. All right, let's pray together. Father, you are making it aware to us that this freedom you have graced us with is the ability to act according to our nature. And it is your intent to expose, to liberate us from any hindrance to that expression. You are such a mighty God, you can make use of every event that has touched our life for this purpose. You are an amazing God, a glorious God, not a run-of-the-mill God that can bring good out of good. You're an all-knowing, all-powerful God who can bring good out of evil. You can transform it. You can redeem it. We don't have to be afraid of it. 
Father, set your children free. Each of us at some place where we're still captive to a lie, maybe knowingly, maybe unknowingly. We've lived with it so long, we think it's us. We think it's true. We want to be full and free expressions of your life. That's the desire, the want to in our hearts. Make it be so for your glory and so that it may be profitable for those around us. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.